Hi, y'all, and welcome to another episode of Lifting the Fog. I am joined by my co-host, Amy Bogus. Hi, Amy. Hi. So, Amy, I know that it was a bummer that you were not able to participate in this pod with Dr. Runko and I, but I know that you know Dr. Runko very well. Yes. Yeah. Um, he is a neuro-oncologist at Riley Hospital for Children, um, and we just kind of talked all things COVID really. Um, and, but then also specifically how it is impacting oncology and some of the things that, um, he's seeing his patients ask about or worry about. Um, so, so he answered some just general COVID questions that I had, but then also specifically talked about how it's impacting oncology. Um, so I'm excited for you to, to hear this pod. He gave so I'm much, for it. yeah, Definitely. so much great information um, and just answered really all of my questions. But I will say there were, after we recorded the episode, I, you know, I think it's been a couple weeks and there has just been so much happening in the media with COVID and um, the talk of reopening and what that looks like and some of the worries behind that. Um and so I, I reached out to him um, at the end of last week and said, can we chat again and, you know, me ask you a couple of these questions that um, I still didn't have much clarity on and maybe Amy and I in the intro can kind of talk about them. So one thing that I was asking him about, and Amy, I don't know how much you have seen about this in the, in the media. I know it's, I feel like it's just filled my my Facebook feed, I guess, um, is all this discrepancy between H1N1 and COVID and why, why is, um, the reaction so different? Um, H1N1 was a global pandemic and we weren't shutting everything down and, um, destroying the economy. And so why is it so different with COVID? Um, have you seen a lot of that on? I have. Yes. Yes, I have. Yeah. And it is super interesting. And even the, um, gosh, I forget if it came directly from the Department of Education or something that came out, though, that was really interesting because it, they had um, almost like a, a whole section of what H1N1 looked like and then how they were accommodating students and then the comparison too of like COVID what's happening now it's very it's really wild so even from like I think all aspects like socially economically um they are very different we're handling them very different and they pop up I've seen that so many times in the news I think on my Facebook yeah probably honestly on Instagram and and more times than not it's got this political spin on it um yes which we won't get into um, <laughs> but he essentially, and I don't know to how often you've heard that phrase are not, or the reproductive index of a, of a virus. So basically how likely are you are to catch it or how, I guess, sick, likely the, the virus is to make you sick. And then what are the outcomes? And so how, how contagious it is and how all of that is measured. And also... Amy and I are not doctors. Bear with us. This is <laughs> this is me recalling this conversation I had with Dr. Runko. So give me some grace. Um, but so he was just talking about that that are not a reproductive index and the difference between H1N1 and COVID, uh-huh. and that COVID is this like overwhelming inflammatory response, and we're seeing patients with kidney failure and blood pressure issues and strokes and. Um, and while 
well, I mean, and he obviously, Dr. Runko is an oncologist. He's not um, an infectious disease doctor. But well, you know, he didn't have the stats on how more likely or how much more contagious H1N1 was than COVID. The outcomes certainly for COVID are way more severe. We know that. Yeah. Um, and I, I think just without being medical, anyone could see. I mean, if you can remember, I we I I worked in our like hospital when H1N1 happened, and it was nowhere near what it's like now to be working during COVID. So the severity of just to the common common quote person, yeah, it's obvious that this is different. You yeah, know, just by the nature of what we're seeing, the why behind it is probably whoa. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited to hear kind of. Dr. Runko's opinion um, and just knowledge and, you know, what he knows and things about it because it's, it just is, it's the unknown, I think, for everybody. We don't really know. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess, I don't know the, the proper term, but that contagious rate, so yeah. that reproductive index, like, is just higher with COVID. The yeah. outcomes, like I said, are just way more severe. And then also that we just don't have an effective antiviral medication to to slow this virus down and with h1n1 like people were able to take tamiflu they had things to give those patients and when you know i was asking him questions about about covid and i said like so basically is the only thing that we know to do for you if it got you know if you're in respiratory distress and it gets so bad it's like i mean you you're inpatient and you get put on a ventilator (laughs) like there's no there's no antiviral meds for yeah. for COVID. So, um, and I was talking to him about an article that I read and how they said that, you know, really there's, there's only a handful of things that we really can do to combat viruses. And uh, one is a vaccine. One is, you know, some sort of like antiviral medication to help slow the replication of the virus down, but then uh-huh. also to control it. To control the spread. So that's why this whole, you know, social isolating piece is so important because that's literally the only thing that we can be doing right now. Yeah. To combat COVID. They don't have any medications to help with patients. They don't have a vaccine. So all we can yeah. do right now is slow the spread. And then another thing, Amy, that I was asking him about because I have also seen this on social media (laughs) that that you know the only benefit to social isolation is flattening the curve and that um the only benefit is so that we're not you know this there's not this huge surge to hospitals and hospital staff to where they're overwhelmed and they don't have the tools that they need to care for patients and dr runko definitely said like yes true that's a huge reason reason why we need to be socially isolating and benefit. But it's also buying really smart people time to figure this virus out and to learn more about it and figure out ways to combat it and and to, to work on a vaccine. So that there, there are lots of reasons why it's beneficial and it's working. Yeah. I don't know any of in your way, thoughts and, on I mean, that. In a way, uh, it's not fun, but in a way it's fascinating, I guess. I don't know, to be able to, I mean, don't get me wrong, I don't like living through this by any means, but living through a pandemic and seeing what everybody is doing, like what clinical research or trying to collect data and just like physicians having to like learn 
what this means and you know yeah it's wild pretty wild and before we even started recording amy like you and i i think most of our listeners know you know both you and i um are young moms we both have two littles under the ages of, of four and so and both of us are working from home and so we are not i mean we're like many Americans right now that are working from home with families um, and trying to juggle both and that it, it's it's hard. Um, but, you know, before we recorded, we were talking about this season that we're in now of like talking about reopening and what that looks like and the uncertainty that that brings and really just talking about it each individually and what that means for our families. Um, both of us are lucky enough that our mom slash mother-in-laws help help with our kids and even that piece like when is that okay when can we be doing that and and uh-huh. implementing that and and it's it's just hard and so I kind of talked to Dr. Runko a little bit about that and I said like you know I've also been seeing physicians that um we work with or that I'm just friends with on social media that are talking about their worries about reopening and that you know uh-huh. maybe people are reopening too quickly and what yeah. implications that that could have and the long and the short of it that Dr. Runko said um was that reopening is just super complex there's a lot of just weighing the you know the risk first benefit and unfortunately the economy is is in that mix um, but so are also lives and saving yeah. them. And so, yeah. um, you know. That word, I like hearing that word. It just sounds, okay, yeah, this is complex. It's not going to look simple. It's not going to be simple. There's going to be differences of even from, you know, political, social, economical, all that stuff. It's, it's interesting. That's like a perfect word for that. Yeah. He definitely said, like, as a MD, he what he can, I guess, contribute to that part of the um, conversation is that, we, you know, we want to be seeing numbers declining. That makes sense. But, you know, before we talk about reopening. But, like, he also touched on, too, like, different locations are impacted differently. Yeah. So, and obviously so. I mean, rural areas that haven't been hit as harder by COVID are going to be reopening at different rates with different standards than New mm-hmm. York City. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I thought that, I thought he just answered that really well and kind of almost gave me relief in saying that this is a super complex issue mm-hmm. that doesn't, you know, there's not a lot of data to support, like, the, the quote-unquote right way to reopen, which makes yeah. me, as, like, a normal person living through this and I know you too feel okay about like giving myself some grace with how I feel about my family I guess quote unquote reopening Uh it's just weird times it is it is but I don't know I mean those were I can't wait I am excited to hear it I was gonna try to listen to the non-edited version before but I'm just gonna listen to it with the listeners yes (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I was bummed that you couldn't that you couldn't join us for this one. Um I know that that you'll be on on the next one, um but a lot of just great information um and just good insight too to hear from an oncologist standpoint how you know how this is impacting his population because we're also seeing a lot of that in the news, right? Like who are the immune compromised populations and what does that mean yeah. for them and kids yeah. on treatment um are that. So yeah, I love it. Yeah. I love that. 
Oh, just podcasting from home, and you can hear my baby crying in the background. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I'm like, ooh, I can hear my four-year-old outside the door. I'm like, please don't come in. <laughs> All of our listeners are giving us grace right now. But I guess before we end, um, Amy and I, as always, want to just wish everybody well right now during these weird times and be encouraging that everybody be um, doing the self-care that you can be doing um, with whatever that means for you. Deep breaths, meditate, prop your feet up when your kid goes to sleep. (laughs) Parents, give yourself some grace with being teacher and mom and every other role right now. But okay, without further ado, Dr. Runko. Hi, Dan. Welcome to Lifting the Fog. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Megan. Thanks Hi. for having me. Uh, Dan or Dr. Runko. Um, so, kind of, can you just start us off with like a, a little background of you, what you do, um, what you're, so you're a neuro oncologist, but where'd you yeah. go to school? Where'd you do your fellowship? Yeah. So, I'm from, I'm from St. Louis originally. Yeah. Grew up there. And I went to medical school at Loyola Chicago. And after medical school, I was a pediatric resident and chief resident at here at Riley. And then I did my fellowship at um, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, which is affiliated with Emory University. It's the Athletic Cancer and Blood Disorder Center. And during my time there, I also got a master's of science in clinical research. And uh, so clinically, like you said, I take care of neuro-oncology patients, patients, kids with um, tumors of the brain and the spinal cord. And my research interests are really in nutrition and what's called supportive care. So basically, all the things that go into taking care of cancer that is not the chemotherapy. So things I I talk to families about and do research in are risk factors for weight loss, things that impact quality of life, um, and some of the ways that nutrition impacts chemotherapy-related side effects and survival. Yeah, awesome. And I hope eventually, I know before kind of COVID craziness, if you will, we had chatted about you being on the pod to talk about nutrition um, and and while on treatment. So hopefully this is just your first appearance on the podcast and we can have another conversation about that because I'm super interested in in that. And did you ever listen to, I know that you listened to or have listened to some episodes. Did you ever listen to the episode where I talked with Danny who does- I'm a fan of the pod, uh, but I've not gotten to that episode yet. Okay. Well, it's a goodie. We talk about fitness and nutrition, but I have heard you speak um, about nutrition and, uh, you know, and well on treatment, and it was super interesting. So hopefully this is part one of of, uh, many times that you're on the the pod and you can share with us because that's super interesting. And while this, um, you know, this topic of coronavirus and COVID-19 is not exactly um, what I do research in, the fact of what we're talking about is how it impacts um, kids with cancer and specifically their families is something that I have, um, you know, more experience with specifically around nutrition and and, um, feeding. But it is it is an area that impacts their life, um, regardless of whether or not they actually get the coronavirus. Yeah. And so you and I are obviously doing this podcast today virtually. We are Zooming because we are respecting the, you know, social distancing and and, um, 
just living in these these COVID times right now. I want to say I myself am like week four working remotely um, since, you know, the pediatric hospital that we work at has kind of made some changes and just trying to limit foot traffic in the hospital and, and being safe. Um, and so I know the pod that we're posting before this is Amy and I just kind of sharing and talking about working remotely and kind of these COVID-19 times that, that we're all living in. But um, I think we're kind of hoping to, for the next few weeks, shift lifting the fog to sort of be a COVID series. Um, so I'm excited to have you on today and have your perspective of not only as a physician, but then specifically an oncologist and how it's impacting our patients and families um, and, and in the pediatric settings. But before I guess we get started, um, can we just generally talk about what is COVID-19? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's and it's an interesting topic because people call it a lot of different things. We've heard coronavirus, yeah. we've heard corona, uh, COVID nineteen, um, we've heard um, you know a lot of different people call it a lot of different things. So in general, coronavirus is a big category of what are generally upper respiratory viruses. So COVID nineteen is specifically referring to a particular strain of coronavirus that was kind of identified in 2019. So coronavirus, we test for them all the time. They can cause mild upper respiratory infections. They can affect uh, humans. They can affect animals. And what happens with um, when there are novel coronavirus strands, like this one is called, the virus can be passed from people, can be passed to animals, and certain parts of that virus can mutate a little bit. And that can change how contagious a virus is and can also change how the body recognizes the virus. So if you have any immunity towards other viruses that are similar. And then finally, um, those mutations can affect how your body responds to the virus. So people may be familiar with uh, or have heard about SARS or MERS. These were different respiratory strains that um, have affected the world. And it's the same concept is that somewhere along the line, these viruses mutated and it really affects the way that people are infected with them. Yeah. And so I guess also, what is the, what is the difference between, um, I think I started working in the hospital setting really that the first year of kind of the H1N1 scare. So what's the difference between this respiratory virus um, and even strand of, co- of, of the coronavirus from things like the flu or H1N1? I mean, we've never, we were talking about this a little earlier before we started the pod, but We've, we've never lived in this like isolation like we're living in or this kind of, you know, just scare amongst everybody in society. So wh- why is it so different? And why are we taking these pretty extreme precautions? Right. So the, the main difference is, like I said, the severity of how the body responds to the virus and also the things we have to sort of mitigate the side, the things that we have to treat the virus. Mm-hmm. So when the virus kind of mutates, 
every virus is a little bit different. You know, like measles affects the body differently than influenza, which affects the virus different, uh, which affects the body differently than coronavirus, say. So for whatever reason, it's kind of a complicated physiologic response. But this particular virus um, affects the respiratory tract. And what we're seeing, the severity really comes from kind of the body's response to that. So sometimes it's a big inflammatory response. Your body's trying to fight off this virus and you get fevers, but that releases a lot of what are called cytokines. The cytokines in your white blood cells are meant to destroy virus, but the things that they release can also damage the liver, the kidney, cause fluid accumulation in the lungs. So for a complicated, you know, complicated set of steps, this virus is causing more of that body reaction. Because would you say Corona, you're having like more of a prolonged fever? Not necessarily. I mean, that is the problem with this particular coronavirus. Um, but that is a reflection of the ongoing inflammatory process mm-hmm. in the body. Okay. So, for example, so the way that I kind of equate this to people is because people ask, well, why don't we have a vaccine or why don't we have a treatment for the virus? Right. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem is that we have Tamiflu, you know, that you may have heard of. And I don't have any relationship with any products or anything that I <laughs> But, you know, a lot of people have heard about Tamiflu. Yeah. Tamiflu is an antiviral that prevents the influenza virus from replicating, you know? So if you stop the virus from replicating, you have less virus, you have less symptoms, you get better quicker. The problem is we don't have that for this coronavirus. And um, I try to, people say, well, why don't we have a vaccine for it? And I tried to equate it to like reading a book. So if I handed you a book and I said, Megan, go through this book and pick out the word boat, highlight the word boat in this book. Mm-hmm. A vaccine is kind of the same way. It trains your body. Every time you see the word boat, ooh, that's bad. We got to get rid of that. Okay, that's great. Well, what if I give you a book that is written in Spanish or in Japanese? Mm-hmm. and tell you to go in and find the word boat. You have to learn an entire new language and sometimes an entire new uh, characters. You know, Japanese characters are totally different than English, the characters that we use in the English language. Yeah. And so I can't even tell you to find the word boat when you don't even know what the boat word boat looks like yeah. or that word boat even exists in that, um, in that book. And in the same way, you can't make a vaccine to a virus that you don't know exists until you really understand kind of the building blocks of that virus. And so that's what the scary part is, is that we, the virus is going to do what the virus is going to do, but we really don't have a vaccine and we don't have antiretrovirals or other things that we know are going to decrease the severity or treat that viral infection. And is it correct to say that this, that, you know, COVID-19, so the specific strand is never going to go away, but the point of like this isolation or social distancing is to quote unquote, kind of flatten the curve to get it to more of a manageable. Exactly. I guess. Yeah, go ahead. Well, and it's somebody, I saw this actually online. Someone equated it to um, glitter, you know, if you have small (laughs) children, right? Like. Sometimes you have items with with glitter on them. And if you have glitter um, in your house, like, you can't ever, it doesn't go away, right? Like, it's it's just stuck there forever. Oh, that's a great analogy, and it's just visual. (laughs) So with with glitter, like, you know, 
it, think about it replicating on your body. So if you get one piece of glitter, you know, on your body, it's going to grow and divide. And every time you breathe out, you spread that glitter somewhere else. Yeah. And that can pick it up. So the only way, right, the only way to stop that glitter from spreading is to keep people apart, you know, to keep you separated. So will coronavirus ever go away? I think the answer is technically no, because we still see H1N1 flu. You know, we still see influenza, um, things like that. But the goal is really like the virus cannot spread itself. The virus has to live in a living organism, yeah. in a person, in an animal, in a respiratory droplet. And so the idea is, the other thing is that it is very contagious. And when we talk about flattening the curve, it's really about the strain on hospital resources too. Mm-hmm. Because yes, people are still going to keep getting sick. But if you can prevent 100,000 people from being sick at the same time, you know, we don't have 100,000 ventilators in Indiana. Yeah, And so if we can separate people, you, you decrease the number of people that you are exposed to, which decreases the number of people who get the virus. And then we hope that that percentage of people that get severe illness or need respiratory support is going to be decreased and spread out. Yeah. Do you think, and I know too, like before we, we started talking today or recording our, our podcast, um, we had talked about, you know, I was just watching the news and they were talking about things like um, immunization um, cards or um, kind of doing away with cultural thing greetings like shaking hands. Do you think once this kind of calms down and who knows when that is that that those things will change, that we've kind of shifted our culture of in, into being, I guess, kind of scared of interaction or just changing what that looks like? Well, I hope it's not scared, you know, but I hope that you never want our our country or our families to go through something like this. But I hope that what people can take from this is a better understanding of how people get sick and like what viral infections mean Mm -hmm. and things and the impact of not having vaccines to prevent these kinds of illnesses. Yeah. So, you know, I don't I don't know if people in our culture are going to stop shaking hands or if we're going to change the vaccine requirements, you know, for schools or to be out in public, things like that. But I really see this as much more like measles and polio were in the early 1900s, that people saw how much it affected their lives and their loved ones and made an effort, a concerted effort that we all agree on to decrease the transmissibility of this virus. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because some of our families of um, kids who are going through cancer treatment right now have actually equated it to like, this is what every day is like for me. Mm-hmm. You know, people in the, across the entire United States are recognizing how scared I am of going out to the grocery store when my child is getting chemo mm-hmm. or sending my kid back to school or being around the other children when they're going to school, if my child's not going to school. Yeah. And so if nothing else, I hope that this at least leads us to recognize the impact our actions have on the rest of our society. Yeah, I agree. I've been thinking about that a lot lately and just trying to think of like the the positivity that's going to come out of all of this. And hopefully 
it is to just be more mindful um, about things like that. And that's just, that's also just a good segue to talk about how this is impacting um, oncology and some of the patients that, that you serve. And in the pod that I recorded before this one, Amy and I were sharing how, you know, right now we're working remotely and we're calling our families and checking in with them and how, I mean, unanimously, all of them are saying, well, this is like, we're used to being isolated. We're used to wearing masks in public. This is kind of like now everybody around us is getting a little bit of a taste of how we feel all the time on treatment. So um, I guess to start to just how is this impacting you and your colleagues in the pediatric setting? Well, I think it's from a number standpoint, we are not seeing the number and the severity of coronavirus illnesses that the adults facilities are, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that's consistent across the country. There have not been a significant number of pediatric infections and pediatric deaths when you compare to the numbers of adults. So that, you know, that is a good thing for our patients. But I think you bring up a really good point that our families have been tremendously impacted by coronavirus, even though it's not them getting sick specifically. So from, I'll speak personally first. Um, so what we are doing is we are trying to minimize the number of days that we are in the hospital. Mm-hmm. So we are condensing our clinic schedules. We are trying to postpone any patient that is safe and able to do so in order to just decrease the number of people that are coming in and out of the clinic in an effort to protect those kids that we can't keep at the clinic. Um, essentially, every child Um, that is on treatment, whether that's chemotherapy, radiation, bone marrow transplant, those patients we have deemed are essential visits and they have to proceed as planned. So I'm I'm not seeing patients that are off therapy. We're getting some MRIs and we're doing virtual visits. I'm really not seeing my colleagues much at all. We're doing all of our uh, our oncology tumor boards and all of our administrative meetings remotely. And um, and, and personally, I would say meeting a family, it's been really difficult, both for me and for the families, to not have visit, to have visitor restrictions in place. So a lot of the hospitals have limited pediatric patients to having one visitor with them at any given time. That is whether they're having surgery, whether they're being admitted for chemotherapy, or in my case, sometimes I've met a new family with a new cancer diagnosis for the first time and having to have that conversation with one parent in the room and one parent on the phone is is just really something that I, I've never been prepared to do. Mm-hmm. And there are just sometimes you want to reach out and you want to hug a family or you want to shake hands or you want them to see your face. I mean, we're wearing masks every day, all the time when we're in patient contact, which is, again, a safety measure and is important. But, you know... I want, this is a long-term journey and a long-term relationship that I'm going to have with these patients and these families. And it's hard for me to do. I can't imagine how hard it is for families to not be together during that or not be able to, you know, hug me or shake my hand or, you know, do these other things. I think the other interesting thing is it comes up with every visit, whether it's coronavirus comes up with every patient visit, whether it's a new patient, whether it's a chemo visit, whether it's a hospital admission, whether it's a a consultation, um, families are scared. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's a really, um, a really tough thing and a really important thing to deal with. Yeah, I was 
I was talking with a mom, I guess a couple weeks ago now, who was um, asking me about their, you know, I think I was talking to her on a Tuesday and she had an appointment on a Thursday and she was asking me, do you think that they're going to make me come in? Or, I mean, I wonder, I, you know, he has to get chemo, so I guess we do have to go in. But I just like, what does clinic look like? And how busy is are the waiting rooms? And I don't want to be sitting. I mean, she was just like, like kind of rambling off all of these worries about even just going. And, you know, she was saying, you know, me and my husband were, were older. Um, and, you know, I'm on oxygen sometimes. I'm just, I'm terrified about even myself being in there. And just all, all these worries that, you know, that, you know, families are having. And especially in the beginning of all this, I feel like we're slowly getting to a place where all of the information that's put out there, whether it be on social media or the news is starting to feel a little more streamlined and the same, but especially in the beginning, it just felt like all these different avenues for what's true and what's not and how you get it and how long it's incubated in your body and how contagious it is. And, um, you know, just who's impacted and, um, so I, I do feel like now that we're kind of growing in this like Corona times where, you know, the, the information that we all have is pretty constant, I hope, I think. But gosh, in the beginning, I just felt like so many of our families were just nervous to even set foot in the hospital to come to their appointments. Um, and it's already not a fun place to be right. <laughs> and to go to. <laughs> And like you pointed out, it was so, it has been so rapidly changing and so rapidly evolving. Yeah. And family, that's a real concern. You know, families that have said, I don't want to come in and get chemo. I'm scared of, you know, COVID-19. Um, and, you know, that's, that is a real fear and something, I mean, A, a family going through the diagnosis of cancer in their child is one of the most difficult and horrible things that they've ever, or maybe will ever have to go through. Mm -hmm. But B, to add the fear of this COVID-19 on top of that, I mean, is just, for some families, is just unbearable. What I have said to families is, you know, what I do know is what's going to happen to this tumor or this cancer if we don't treat it. You know, that we know for sure. What we don't know is how, um, how COVID-19 will affect them or if and when people will get infected with the virus. So what I tell families is what we are doing is trying to make them as safe as possible. Mm -hmm. And I tell families, as hard as it is to limit the visitors, we are doing, as hard as that is, we are doing that to protect other kids. You know, just like we talked about the spread of the virus in the community and these stay-at-home orders, if we bring fewer people into clinics, we have less people that are exposed to our nurses, our techs, the room that you're in, and the less likely we are to transmit, you know? So we are making every effort to protect the kids that cannot stay home, that don't have that option. And how do um, you feel like overall that message has been received? Do you feel like families are super understanding of it? Do you feel like it, this is, it's hard, it's just a hard pill to swallow? I mean, where do you feel like our families are with that and those changes? I think it's both. Um, because even as, as unfortunate and as difficult as it is, families understand it, you mm -hmm. know? And so sometimes I have families have gotten loud and have gotten angry mm -hmm. about it. Um, and I know that's not personal to me. It's the, it's the 
It's them grieving and coping through that. And that's how they're responding. Yeah. So I would say that most families, they understand it conceptually. That doesn't make it any easier, you know, to go through. And most of the families, when I talk through this, are feel reassured um, by the steps that we're taking to keep their kids safe. Yeah. And I think you and I had talked um, a little earlier, too, about kind of working through this with a family and explaining, you know, these visitor restrictions I'm, you know, putting in place and communicating to your family. I'm also doing to every other family in this clinic to protect you and to protect your child. Um And I think that's an obvious but important message also to say to the families that everybody is doing this and and why and just to keep to keep everybody safe. Um, I was curious, too, on, I guess, the the overall vibe or thought about protecting providers and nurses and techs and um, because, of course, you know, I worry about and think about families coming into a hospital setting and when I... um, this week, this this Thursday, I was supposed to take both of my children into um, you know our our hospital to, for just for their well child checks, and I was really relieved to get the call to say it's okay. They don't have any important vaccines. We're we're going to cancel and and see them later because I was nervous about just taking them into the hospital setting. So I definitely think about our families and how they feel about just coming into a hospital and and it feeling like an unsafe place at this time. But how do you how do you feel like your colleagues, so doctors and nurses and techs, um, are feeling right now being in a hospital setting? Are they nervous? Are they scared? Or I think I think people are nervous. I think um, a lot of us went into healthcare because we care about people and we want to take care of, and pediatrics in particular, we want to take care of kids and we want to help families through these really difficult times. But it is scary because a lot of healthcare workers, you know, are worried about taking things home to their kids, or maybe they have, um, you know, I have some colleagues that have older parents with health conditions that live in the house, you know, and worried about putting people in their household at risk. I think, interestingly, you know, IU Health has also implemented um, all of the medical providers wearing masks. And I think that's really important for two reasons. Um, one is to really emphasize the seriousness of the situation and making sure that people are taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. But two is recognition of the fact that up to, I've seen estimates that up to 20 to 25% of um, carriers, people who are shedding the virus, can have no symptoms at all. And that's important for me. You know, I feel healthy. I have no respiratory symptoms. I have no fever. But it is a worry of mine that I could unknowingly be shedding this virus. Oh, yeah. And so I think that was really important that we went to a universal masking policy for healthcare providers. I feel like maybe a week or so before, it seemed like nearly everybody was shifting towards working remotely um, and and trying to make changes, you know, with, with staff and employees and just how things were ran. Um, I had a little bit of a cough and a tickle in my throat and I, in working in an outpatient hemoc setting, I already don't want to be there. I mean, COVID or no COVID, I don't want to be there if I don't feel well. We have, you know, immune compromised kids and kids on treatment and it already feels kind of weird to, to be down there if you, 
have a runny nose or a cough, but I feel like it was about a week before our team specifically started working remotely. And I feel like I had a nervous breakdown about having a cough and being in the hospital. And just like you were saying, do, do I have this and am I spreading it to people and just feeling nervous about being there? So I, I just can't imagine. And I feel like that is another thing that makes this virus. So I guess scary is that that incubation period or how people can be walking around and carrying it and not feeling sick. Um, so I don't know. It just makes I, it, it's weird times. <laughs> I don't know other, right. any other way to say it. It's just weird. It feels kind of criminal to not feel well right now. Right. Well, and I think that, you know, families, families, I hopefully recognize that we have those worries. You know, we worry about protecting their kids, yeah. you know, from the outside world and from us, you know? Yeah. And I think that it's one of those things that it goes back to, the only thing we can we have right now to stop the spread of this is separating people, social distancing, and you know minimizing contact as much as we can. And it's it's a hard thing to deal with. And you know, but it, it does. It's I hope that our the families of our our patients and our patients know that this is the reason that we're we're taking these efforts. Is like you said to protect them. Yeah, and I just. My, you know, my heart hurts too for hospitals everywhere and their admin staff that are trying to figure out ways to keep providers and nurses and essential hospital staff safe. And I, I saw this um, post on Instagram last night from a nurse in New York City, which, you know, we all know New York is just hit so hard right now. But, you know, with the bruising from the mask that she's wearing 13 hours a day and she essentially, you know, the message in her post was that people say, this is what I signed up for. This is not what I signed up for. I signed up to take care of patients and to get them well. Um, but it just feels like this weird time for healthcare providers and like that, that assuming that risk of bringing things home or contracting the virus themselves, you know. Hospitals everywhere do a really amazing job of having um, isolation precautions in place when it's appropriate to keep staff safe. You know, if you've got a patient in the hospital with TB, you know, that that's known to every staff member that's walking in that room and they're putting on the appropriate isolation gear that we know protects them. It's like right now, one, we, well, I guess we know it's like airborne and breathing, but, you know, we, people don't. We, we don't have that protection to keep everybody safe. And, you know, nurses are re-wearing masks. <laughs> that, I mean, it's just, it's just weird times. Um, and I, I think that goes back to the argument about social distancing and trying to flatten the curve. You know, it's not just about people getting sick. It's about healthcare, you know, healthcare workers having the equipment that they need mm -hmm. to care for people who are sick. Yeah. You know, if we have an, an entire hospital filled with patients who have COVID-19, we don't have enough PPE to be a uh, personal protective equipment to be able to, to manage that. We're just not set up for it. Yeah. Same thing with, I actually have a colleague who works in adult intensive care and it was really powerful and really kind of um, shocking to me when she said, I didn't get into this to choose who gets a ventilator. Yeah. You know, I, 
same with our nurses, same with our respiratory therapists and our physical and occupational therapists. And like you said, you know, techs and pharmacists and everyone, we did not get into this to, to make choices about the healthcare we deliver. We got into this to be able to provide healthcare for patients and to get them better. And it's really hard to think about, right? Like putting yourself in harm's way. I mean, think of, we wouldn't, you wouldn't expect a surgeon to operate without gloves, right? Like that you wouldn't expect, um, yeah, you wouldn't expect someone to go into um, a yeah, room t- with something with tuberculosis without a mask. It's Why like, we- it's like never are you guys, and by you guys, providers or nurses, going into caring for patients at risk to yourself. Like that's why we have all the policies and procedures and protective equipment that we do is so that when you go into surgery, when you go to care for a patient with TB, you know what you have to do to protect yourself. It just feels so weird that we're not living in that environment right now, I guess. Yeah. And it's about, I mean, it's, it's like you said, it's about protecting ourselves, protecting our families. So, you know, that we're not taking these things home but it's also about protecting the other patients because if I am sick, you know, and this is what has been a big, big thing. If a healthcare worker has a fever, they are home and they are quarantined and they can't take care of other patients, you know? So like if I am around someone who is sick and I get sick, someone else has to order chemotherapy for, you know, my chemotherapy patients, Yep. you know, yeah. like someone else has, someone has to do that. You know? Yeah. And, and then that's, that's two weeks at minimum that you're, you're out of commission, that you can't right. be around patients. Yeah. So it's tough. And I think it's, it's one of those, um, you know, thinking about this COVID-19 has been a thousand competing interests at the same time. Right. Mm-hmm. And none of them is necessarily more important than the other. Mm-hmm. They're all important, you know, um, the health of our patients, the health of our family members, the, you know, the economic impact of, you know, shortening hours for nurses or techs, you know, the economic impact of people staying home, uh, the economic impact of, you know, buying more masks, the human impact of running out of ventilators, like all of these are important interests that have to be considered and talked about um, because they're real and they're not going away. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem really weird, I guess, for a lack of a better word, that we all are collectively impacted by this. I don't really know the last time. I mean, like, I think of 9-11 a little bit, but it's still like that happened. We we were all sad, like our country grieved together. And in a week, we kind of all, you know, maybe not unless you lived in New York City. But like this just it just feels like our whole nation really the world is just collectively impacted by this and it's just kind of a bizarre time to be in and and it certainly if you're in healthcare, I just can't can't imagine and you're right it's I mean it's rich and it's poor it's urban and it's rural yeah it doesn't care about your race or your ethnicity or what language you speak um it's affecting everybody of all walks of life. And that's why I think it takes effort from everybody to combat it. Yeah. Do you, um, 
also I'm just curious for you to speak to, because we're, we're hearing a lot of um, who's most at risk um, once they have, I guess, tested positive for COVID-19. So are children that are on treatment um, in that kind of most at risk or high, high um, risk category? So the the number the most uh, patients who have died have been older um, adults. So like uh, the highest mortality I think is is patients over the, over sixty years old. Mm-hmm. The more comorbidities you have, the more likely you are to die as well. Um, you're exactly right. I think we worry about every sort of viral illness with our kids that are going through treatment. So if you um, extend that. We don't have a lot of experience with it at this point with kids that are immunocompromised or on treatment with the virus. We just don't have people that are reporting a lot of those cases. Um, I think I've only seen maybe one or two reported in the literature about um, kids with cancer or on therapy um, getting COVID-19 and getting really sick from it. But If you go back to it, I mean, the thing you have to remember is that we need your white blood cells are what fight off infection, you know, T cells and B cells. And they're also the cells that make antibodies and remember the antibodies, which remember these viruses and can fight them off in the future. And a lot of our kids don't have that, you know, they just don't have the ability to fight off these infections. Mm -hmm. So Yes, our kids are very at risk, and it's important that they that they take the precautions that we've been talking about, and their families as well. And I think a lot of our families have gotten this kind of drilled in, you know, since the beginning, since they were diagnosed. And hopefully, um, because of that, you know, families are making an effort, and, and we're, we have not seen a lot of oncology patients that have tested positive yet. Well... Gosh, I don't know. Are there, is there anything that we're kind of, I guess, leaving out or misconceptions um, regarding COVID-19 that you kind of want to share or make families be aware of? I mean, we talked about a lot of um, their worries and, and things, you know, conversations you're having with families in clinic, but. Yeah, I think there's, there's a couple things that really come to mind. Um, the first is we, we've talked a lot about masks, but we haven't really talked about gloves in particular. And I know, you know, you and I, I think have talked about this before. Um, everyone's kind of focused on, should I be wearing gloves or, you know, what, what. Let's I talk to- about the gloves. Cause I'm seeing them <laughs> at every other person at the grocery store. So yes. So I am not a proponent of wearing gloves outside doing a medical procedure. Um, the reason is really the reason you put gloves on is to prevent germs from your hand coming into contact with germs from whatever it is that you're doing. Mm-hmm. COVID-19 is spread through respiratory transmission. So if you touch, you can touch a table that someone has sneezed all over with COVID and you won't get it. The thing is, though, when you touch, I see people at the grocery store wearing gloves, touching the um touching the uh, the freezers, touching the handles, touching yeah. the door, yeah. and pulling their mask down. And, and touching then, their phone with their gloved hands, then, yeah. Exactly. And so all that, that gloved hand is doing is moving germs from one surface to another. Yes. So if you are at the grocery store, you don't need to be wearing gloves. What you need to be doing is 
not touching your face, minimizing what you come into contact with, and then not touching your phone. Yeah, and perhaps and then, washing your hands when you're done with the grocery store. And then when you're done, wash your hands uh, for at least 20 seconds with soap and water. Or yeah. if you don't have that, you know, using alcohol-based um, hand sanitizer. Um, but gloves, like, taking away, using those gloves, and I've even seen them, like, thrown in the street or left in the ground in the parking lot, I think because people are scared about taking it back Oh, with them. sure, Yeah. But it's just, it's something you, you don't need to use and is an extra cost to your family and an extra, um, that's a set of gloves that is not available in a healthcare setting. And so, and I, gosh, I can't remember. I've read so many different <laughs> things on, on COVID, but um, I was listening, I think, to a doctor speak about it on good old Instagram and talking about the risk of you touching a surface area and even touching your face or your mouth or your eyes and contracting COVID. Certainly you could, but super minimal compared to just breathing around somebody with it. Yeah. So there's actually been a lot of debate around how long the particles can actually stay in the live air. on a surface. So yeah. Sure. Yeah, so there's been a lot more data on how long they can live on surfaces. You know, you may have seen, like, um, I think there was somewhere, you know, that they can live Eight on hours a, is what I right, have read on a most cardboard recent. box yeah. or something like that. Yeah. But from transmission from a surface, you know, from a, a food container or, you know, there there's not really a big risk of that, provided you are washing your hands and not touching your face. Yes, the other thing, though, is, and I've, I've read about recently, is, like, how long does it live in the air? So let's say, for example, somebody coughs in an elevator, and then they leave the elevator. Sure. And then come back a few minutes later. I think that's something that we don't really know very well yet. Um, the virus has to be transmitted from person to person. So it has to be in a respiratory droplet yeah. or, or, you know, some cell of some kind. And so... Um, while I don't know the specific numbers on how long, quote, air quotes here, it survives in the air, what has been shown is it is contact with respiratory droplets and then contact with one of your mucosal surfaces. That is the highest risk for transmitting the virus. Yeah. I've also seen, and of course, because everybody is isolated in home and then good old Indiana weather, it's back to freezing. But a few days ago, it was 70 degrees and people are, um, you know, just itching to be outside and get some fresh air. Um, but I've seen a lot um, floating around too on people just being worried about, geez, like, should I be going on walks or runs? Because, you know, I just took a run yesterday and I ran past somebody and maybe it was six feet, but then it was windy. And is that wind carrying germs to me so I mean what are your what are your thoughts on that people being out yeah, so and about the, and walking and running and is that safe so right now the CDC is recommending if you are out in a public place to wear a mask or something that is covering your face um I think that this it is important to be out it's important for mental health it's important for physical health to be outside yeah but what I've been recommending to families is going to places that are not extremely crowded. So, you know, walking around the block, not going and walking at the park. And when you do so, you know, I've been walking around my neighborhood. I see my neighbors and I cross off, let them stay on the sidewalk and I get off the sidewalk and I say hello and, and yeah. stay six feet away. Um, because 
you know, again, the likelihood is that the highest likelihood is being in close contact with somebody less than six feet. And there are some reports, too, that, you know, the duration that you are in close contact with that person who is infected is really the more important thing. Yeah. So in theory, if you're running by someone and they cough, could it could a droplet land on my face and I get it? In theory, you yes. could. But the reason we talk but about But less this, likely if you are socially distancing yourself and again, limiting yeah. your exposure to big groups of people and blah blah again. blah. Yeah. Yeah, so let's go back to our glitter analogy. If I'm holding a if I'm holding a pile of glitter in my hand and I blow it, mm-hmm. you know, forward, think about if you're standing right in front of me versus if you are running past me versus yeah. if you are 6 feet away. Yeah. The the more barriers that you can put in between you and those respiratory droplets, the less likely you are to get sick. Yeah. And I mean, people still need to go to the grocery store, but don't go every other day. Go once every nine or 10 days. Or I mean, like just everything that we can do to be minimizing our exposure to one another. Exactly. What, what about your thoughts on, I know kind of in the beginning of all of this, um, there was a lot of I'm going to call it mask shaming, (laughs) but, um, and talk about, you know, surgical masks are, are meant for surgeons to be wearing to kind of, um, you know, protect the patient from the the surgeon breathing onto them and, and that there's, you know, those gaps on the side and that they're not, they're not protecting you. So stop wearing them. Um, a lot of people have been getting really creative with homemade masks, and I think the Surgeon General show, had a how-to video on how to make a mask out of a T-shirt. I've seen people yes, doing it Indiana out of zone. yeah. Uh, I've seen people making them out of bandanas, um, and just just people getting creative with with homemade masks. But like you were saying, the CDC, I think, in the last handful of days has now said if you're going into public places new evidence is suggesting that wearing a mask is is safe and we're we're encouraging people to do that but previously we you know the thought out there was that those surgical masks or fabric masks or masks that um you know have those kind of gaps in this in the sides still can allow things to get through but is that kind of going back to what we were just saying that it's still um that doing that isn't 100% effective, but it's better than nothing sort of a thing? Yeah, I think that, you know, the surgical masks, the reason that people talk about surgical masks in the in the healthcare setting is because they are built to filter out as much respiratory particulate as possible. Yeah. So knowing that a surgeon is doing a procedure, they're in close contact to a patient. Yeah. And so you want something that is going to filter out 99% of respiratory viru- uh, respiratory particles from getting between you and the patient. Yeah. Now, if you are, like, go back to our running example. If you're running down the Monon six feet away of another person, do you really need a surgical-grade mask that filters out 99% of the respiratory particles? In an ideal world, sure, everyone could have one. Mm-hmm. But your risk is exponentially lower than the surgeon that is in direct contact with the patient. So that's where the Surgeon General is saying is if you are separating yourself six feet, if you are minimizing the number of people that you're coming into contact with, and maybe you're wearing one of these cloth masks, it's like trying to decrease, you know, if you can put three blockades between 
you and that coronavirus. Maybe none of them are 100%, but you know, you try to build that Swiss cheese model where our, where your where your holes, the holes in your cheese don't line up. Yeah, yeah. And then, so I think that that's what we're trying to do here is none of these things is 100% guaranteed to prevent you from getting coronavirus, yeah. right? We can, and you're right, sometimes the masks don't fit perfectly or you're wearing a mask, but you keep, you touch it because it's not on your nose right or my glasses are fogging up. And so that's why, you know, wearing a mask sometimes gives people a false sense that they are safe and, you know, they forget to do the other practices to prevent transmission Mm -hmm. and two actually increases the likelihood that you're going to touch your face, touch your eyes, you know, breathe into your glasses that you're going to harbor those particles. So I think that's about, it's about using the mask that mitigates the risk um, that you need mitigated, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, one thing I was going to say too, though, that gets back to um, question of things that we haven't talked about. I've had a lot of questions and, and we talked at the, at the start of the podcast about my interest in nutrition and supplementation um, for kids that are going through cancer treatment. Yeah. I've had a lot of families ask me about things that they've read about, like vitamin C or like, um, you know. I can't wait to hear your answer on this because I've been taking my emergency every day, taking my multivitamins. So tell me, am I doing the, is that making a difference? Well, the bottom line is we don't know that it's making a difference. We don't know. What I have told my families is that, there are some dangers of using too much of supplements, you know? Um, For example, a lot of families ask about antioxidants, right? Antioxidants decrease, um, you know, free radicals, and free radicals are known in the cells to increase your likelihood of cancer. But when we're giving you radiation therapy, we are creating cellular injury. We want the cancer cells to die and get injured. Uh And so in theory, if you take a ton of antioxidants, you can actually be counteracting the effect of the radiation. That's an example I give to families um, to think about the same way with supplements in general, because we don't know what super high doses of vitamin B do you know, to your body or super high doses of vitamin C. So what I tell families is I think the best thing that you can do is eat a well-balanced diet, take a multivitamin, um, and do some of those things that make you feel better. But I don't routinely recommend any of those interventions unless there is data to support them. Because the last thing I want my parents, the parents of my kids doing, is going out and like stressing, like going to six different stores to look for vitamin C because vitamin C is out, thinking that that will protect them from the coronavirus if, you know, it won't. Yeah. So, there's nothing wrong with taking emergency. It's great if you want to do it. Again, Good. no relationship with any product. That, <laughs> no, I, um, I don't personally. Okay. Um, and I don't, I'm not currently taking any extra vitamin C, any extra multivitamins, you know, but there's no data to support that any supplement uh, makes you any more or less at risk or um, decreases your severity. I will say... I, and I, I know you and I have talked about too, I was, I'm hoping to, um, in the next couple weeks, have a, a pediatrician on to just talk about vaccines, um, because I think that, um, that there's been a lot of buzz or talk about, 
of course, the Corona vaccine, but then also just thinking about, I think it, I saw one of our colleagues posted on um, social media, this um, funny meme or whatnot that said, oh gosh, what, what was it? It, it was like, um, for all of you, like anti-vaxxers out there, here's the world without one vaccine. And I just thought about that for so long because I really feel like I've kind of been, so I have a four-year-old and I feel like I've been kind of plopped into this, into the middle of this parenting while questioning the medical community. Like I certainly don't think that my parents ever questioned my vaccination schedule or read articles and books on if it was appropriate or not and the link to autism and all this crazy stuff out there. But I felt like obligated to do that as a parent. And I, just, I feel like I'm just kind of in the middle of this we- weird times as a parent um, in my relationship with uh, my my child's pediatrician and that trust versus mistrust that is kind of out there. So I've just been thinking a lot lately that maybe the silver lining out of all of this is that that trust kind of comes back for families with their medical providers and that um, it's just so easy to Google things now. It's like everybody's a WebMD doctor. Um, I'm sure all the time you feel like families will come to you and say, well, I read this. So, um, but I just, I'm hoping that maybe that's the kind of silver lining out of all of this is that, you know, you, you see the hashtag healthcare heroes out there and I'm like, man, maybe one of the best ways that we can honor our healthcare heroes is to really listen to them when they tell us the recommendations that they have um, because, because you're the experts. Um, I don't know. I, I hope. I think everyone needs to find uh, a healthcare provider that they trust. That yeah. is important no matter whether yeah. you're looking for a general pediatrician or an oncologist. And if you don't I, trust your healthcare provider, maybe it's just that healthcare provider and you and you find somebody that is more in line with um, with you and the choices that you want to make as a family. But certainly people go into becoming a physician or a nurse because they care. Um, exactly. And, you know, and the thing is, it is very complicated. You know, medicine is complicated. To become a pediatric oncologist, I went to four years of college, four years of medical school, I did four years of pediatric training, and three years of oncology training. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and even now, there are things that I that are hard for me to interpret. And yeah. so I always welcome questions. You know, if you want to know, you know, is this vaccine really safe? You know, I will tell you everything that I know about it. But I think the thing that people, you know, and I have, I've said these exact words to parents before. I make the same amount of money, whether you get 10 vaccines or zero, Mm -hmm. you know, the hospital, no one is getting rich off of vaccines. Mm -hmm. We are doing vaccines because we think they will save your child and Mm -hmm. save other children too, protect Mm -hmm. other children. And there is, I cannot think of any product that is more tested and more vetted than vaccines. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes parents tell, and I've had these conversations, well, I want to treat this cancer with high dose vitamin C and CBD oil. And, you know, that's because they've done some some reading and and that's a valid question. But I say, how much testing have you, has, has there been in pediatric oncology with CBD oil? Zero. Yeah. How much testing has been done with these chemotherapies? Um, about 50 years worth. 
Yeah. And I can tell you the statistics. I can tell you the side effects. I can tell you the dosages. Yeah. And you know, the same thing is true for vaccines. Yeah. They're tested for safety. They're tested for efficacy. And like you said, we go into healthcare to help people. And if you truly believe that I would recommend something that is hurtful to your child, then I'm not the right healthcare provider for you. And I hope you would find somebody that you do trust. Yeah. And I also, just being a non-medically um, trained person, non-clinical in the hospital setting, it's been so reassuring and just awesome, I guess, to observe too how all of you highly trained, passionate people collaborate with one another. I mean, how many years experience or training did you just say that you had 10 more and that you still collaborate with and and talk to um, oncologists across the nation to make sure that you have the best plan in place for for a child. And I know that it's what, deeply embedded in the culture specifically of the hospital and organization that we work at that you encourage families to get second opinions and to feel really confident in the choice and healthcare plan that they're making for their child. And if you ever were partnering with a physician that didn't encourage that, that would probably be a red flag, that good physicians want to partner with one another, that know that it's a team that makes choices for a child. It's not just, you know, one one person. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm just hoping that what comes out of this is like, you know, I, like I said, I keep seeing all these hashtag healthcare heroes. I, I'm hoping that we transition out of this eventually one day, like I know we will, and we um, continue to treat the medical community like the healthcare heroes that they really are and respect the recommendations that they give us. I've also seen some funny memes out there like, y'all didn't want to follow the CDC guidelines about vaccinating your kids, <laughs> but now that they're telling you to wear a mask, you bought 20. <laughs> And so, also, yeah, and the CDC recommends washing your hands when there's not a pandemic. Yeah, right. But you can carry some of these right? recommendations on, you know. Forever. Yeah. But so hopefully, out of these scary times comes some, some, um, just unity and community with one another, and where we trust each other again, and we just value the hard work that our physicians and nurses are doing all the time to keep us safe. But. Well, and it's so, like you said, it's so easy to put opinions and things out there on the internet or on social media. And it is really hard to dispel, like, you know, you really have to learn to dissect the science, you know, like, and understand how the studies were done, how that may or may not apply to your child, and and really understand, you know, what the implications are. And, and that's why I say this, like, it takes decades for you know, new drugs to become standard of care. Um, And it takes years for vaccines to be deemed safe and effective. And and it's important that we do things like that. And we should hold the same rigor for complementary medicines. You know, I am a big proponent of integrative medicine and complementary medicine, which means using non-pharmacologic things like meditation, like supplements, to complement traditional medicine that is evidence-based. I am not a fan of what what is traditionally called like alternative medicine, you know, using things outside the medical field instead of evidence-based treatments and interventions. But there is is a place, there are um, several integrative and complementary 
um, centers for oncology around the country. Um, Johns Hopkins has one, Columbia has one, they have great online resources. And when families are looking for some of that complementary therapy, I often direct them to those sites because they actually have guidelines, like evidence-based guidelines. Like here are the studies that have been done on vitamin B12 and what it can and cannot do. Yeah. Um, and so, like you said, I think it is a team effort. And but I just I agree. I hope that people recognize, you know, that people go into medicine because they want to help people and that we really do have our patients best interest at heart. Well, Dr. Runko, I just thank you so much for for being on today and just kind of giving us some COVID-19 101, (laughs) but then also just kind of sharing how it is impacting um, the pediatric setting and um, oncology patients. And I think we had a lot of good info. And also I wanna encourage any listeners um, that listen to today's episode and have additional questions, you can email those questions at liftingthefog1, so that's the number one, at Gmail. Um, or you can certainly also message us on our Lifting the Fog pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, we love love to get your questions, and um, hopefully, Dr. Runko, we can send some of those your way if they're specific to this episode, and you can help us out Absolutely. on answering okay. those. Always happy to help. Yeah. Um, so I guess too, and I'm sure um, before we close that you would agree just to, I mean, and I see this everywhere and I'm grateful for those messages that are kind of floating around on social media, but to limit and be mindful about how much you're kind of taking in with all this COVID craziness. Um, make sure that you feel like your resources are reputable. Um, so, um, because really the, the leading experts in this are the medical professionals. So to be listening to them, if you have questions, your physicians and your nurses um, and your nurse coordinators, they don't, you're not annoying. Ask them, especially if you're in the oncology world. If you're um, worried about how this is impacting you and your family and your child, just to ask your oncologist, they want you to ask those questions. They want, they want to help you um, answer those questions and you not be worried about them. Right. And also, also recognize <laughs> so that, and also recognize that this has a tremendous strain and stress um, on on everybody. And mm-hmm. if you need help, if you're feeling isolated, if you're feeling anxious, um, reach out and ask for help. We're yeah. recognizing the mental health and emotional impacts of social isolation and this um, COVID nineteen. So reach out and ask for help because we're all experiencing the same feelings um, yeah. of loneliness and anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But then also just want to say thank you, you know, for everything that you do. I've always, obviously, being a teacher in a hospital and being non-clinical or medically trained at all, I've always kind of just admired you guys and thought, you know, all the work that you do for our patients and family is just so noble. And um, But I'm, like, feeling teary-eyed saying this. (laughs) But I just appreciate you guys tenfold now um, and every, you know, everything that that you all do and being in the hospital setting. And so just thank you for for taking care of our patients and living through this weird COVID time. And I know that we'll all get through it and this will all be a bad dream hopefully soon. But thank you for for all that you do. Well, thank you for having me, and I'm I'm very privileged to be able to take care of uh, our patients. And like you said earlier, it is a team effort, and we are a big team with 
teachers, doctors, nurses, therapists, psychologists, and, you know, we couldn't do what we do without, without you. And I'm really glad that you've done this podcast to sort of help bring a lot of those issues mm-hmm. to light. So thank you too. And you're going to be on once we're done with this little, I guess, COVID series and ta- tell us more about nutrition. Yes. Absolutely. Always okay. Happy to come back. Okay. Can't wait. Okay. Well, thank you again, Dr. Runko. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of Lifting the Fog. As always, please email us at liftingthefog1, that's the number one, at gmail.com. We want to hear from you with your questions, concerns, thoughts, and ideas for future conversations and topics to dive into. And subscribe, whether it's on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, but subscribe and rate us. We would also love for you to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at liftingthefog1, and please hashtag us at hashtag liftingthefog. And as always, Lifting the Fog is an independent podcast. All information, thoughts, and opinions shared are for informational purposes only. No material on this podcast is intended to be substituted for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please always seek the advice of your qualified health provider with any questions that you may have. Thanks for tuning in.